Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I am your host, Matt Herman. And you know what? This episode is Talking Foosball's official non-comprehensive Euro 2020 in the year 2021 preview. It's been a while since we were in touch. We can admit that. The Bundesliga has been off for a couple of weeks. But I figured if you, dear listener, can wait a year for this tournament, you can wait a few days for another Talking Foosball podcast. With me this week, as so often, thank goodness, is another podcaster, actually, whose home country is not playing in this tournament. Hello, Nick Viltagen. Yes, it's uh, it's a tragedy that Norway isn't here. I mean, Norway has only ever been to the Euros once, I think, and that was back in 2000, and uh, they went out of that tournament. Um, I think, funnily enough, the they only scored one goal in that tournament, and, and the... Uh, player who assisted that goal was actually the goalkeeper Thomas Müller, which is, uh, you know, if you if you like some uh, Euro trivia, I think that is actually quite good. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, that, that sounds crazy and surprising, but knowing like what the 1990s version of Norway played, like I, I can imagine that a great proportion of their goals were assisted by the goalkeeper. <laughs> I mean, don't knock it. I think at, at the highest, they were rated... In the second place of the FIFA ranking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they won a lot of games playing that way. I'm, I'm not going to take it away from them. All right, so we, we've got a lot on our plate. We're going to be back in just a second, and we'll start off with just sort of taking a look at how this tournament is taking shape, why in the world they're still calling it Euro 2020, despite the fact that we've all moved on. So it's time for part one of this, uh, you know, non-comprehensive Euro 2020 in the year 2021 preview. Nick, we might as well start talking about the, the subject of health in this context. Health and public health, uh, you know, different story, uh, but, but you know, it is a health topic, has really hung over this tournament for a really long time. Obviously, the fact that we're playing it in 2021 as opposed to last year in 2020 when that would have been more or less impossible is due to public health, due to the fact that we had a pandemic, due to the nature of this tournament as, you know, this was Michel Platini's brainchild sometime back in the late teens, that he thought that this would be a great way to celebrate the anniversary of this tournament, to have it all over Europe. When the day came for this tournament to be played, that turned out to be a terrible idea, of course. It made it so that the tournament was just impossible, even if they had wanted to set up some sort of bubble, as they did for the Champions League last summer, or have very strict controls, as they did in the latter stages of the Bundesliga season last year. That that's the, wouldn't have been possible under the t- circumstances that this tournament is in. However, we are a year on now from when it would have been played, and... That whole concept of playing this tournament all over Europe somehow didn't get scrapped. I know that it's been a long season. It's been a sort of, uh, there was a short break between seasons, you know, end of last season and the beginning of the one that was just passed. So I think a lot of us, especially folks who watch, you know, football quite regularly, quite consistently, it feels like we're just sort of getting more and more and more thrown at us which I'm okay with. I love watching football, but I do feel pretty queasy still about playing in Rome and in London and in Azerbaijan and in Russia and in Hungary. You know, the list goes on and on. Yeah, I mean, 
you do have several interesting elements that you could take an issue with here. First of all, what are Baku and St. Petersburg doing on the list of you know places where this tournament is played? Obviously, UEFA has in its charter that it values human rights, so human rights are important, but that somehow goes out of the window when enough money is put on the table you know, by oil companies from uh, Russia or Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is one of, uh, is geographically speaking in Asia, but it's always sort of teamed up with uh, Europe culturally. I've actually been to Azerbaijan once, a uh, lovely country. It's sort of uh, right between Asia and Europe. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a great place. And Baku is truly a lovely city. But when you look at the regime and when you look at Eliev, uh, uh, he is such a terrible man. And so was his father, who grabbed the power back in the 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union. Why are we allowing these people to whitewash their regimes by giving them such events? I mean, that would be one thing that we could have talked about at length during normal times. But when it comes to COVID and playing a tournament all across Europe, I think we're sort of in a fortunate situation here that a lot of countries have sort of gotten to the point where they've vaccinated a third of their population which means that the most vulnerable in those societies have been vaccinated which means in turn that covid doesn't displace such a such a heavy burden on the healthcare system or indeed uh, a danger to life like it used to do half a year ago so in that regard it's probably a little bit easier to defend this concept than it would have been half a year ago but still it's 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 fairly idiotic when you knew that covid was still going to be around this summer you knew that fairly on last year at least in the autumn you knew that this wasn't going to be a thing that you know at first in march last year i thought well we stay here at home for five or six weeks and then this this thing blows over but obviously it didn't and uh, it's going to be a seasonal thing now, and we are so far away from dealing with it. So playing a tournament in uh, 13 or 14 different countries at this stage, yeah, it's it's truly idiotic. And uh, what we do know from travel is that most Bundesliga players who actually caught COVID infections were infected during international travel. Look at that Hoffenheim squad. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Absolutely. Absolutely. And we saw that, that, you know, it's not the games. It's not necessarily training with other players. It's all the other stuff that goes along with it. It's the hotel stays. It's the airline flights. It's the stuff that sort of you could have cut out. I mean, it would have been real easy for them to just say, we're going to play the whole tournament in Greater London or in North Rhine-Westphalia or in, you know, Belgium slash the Netherlands. All those places have everything you need to to make a, a tournament like that happen or whatever. But, you know... Let's think a little bit about how these health issues are playing out ahead of this tournament. I mean, just before we started recording, you mentioned neighboring Sweden, mm. <laughs> neighboring Sweden, who are playing in this tournament, have had a couple of players test positive for COVID in the days leading up to it. Spain has also had a couple of players test positive. I don't think this is going to be end of that story. We had uh, you know, a, an Estonian player test positive just prior to a friendly with Germany. Earlier in the week, it seems like, you know, even beyond all the tournament logistics stuff, this is actually probably quite likely to touch the actual playing staff of this tournament. It's just 
kind of boggling my mind that we're going <laughs> through with it as we're going through with it. I'm, I'm not going to say I'm ambivalent, but I'm, <laughs> I'm bordering on it. <laughs> I mean, the setup of the tournament means that, as we as we said earlier, you you get all the crappy stuff that uh, exposes players to more risk for infection. So yeah, we're definitely going to see more of it. UEFA says that the national teams can compensate for that by uh, nominating 26 players. It's easier to uh, get more players into the fold. I think Spain. It was Spain who actually started sort of a B squad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, saw other players join up separately from the A squad, so that they can be called upon if needed. And in Spain's case, I think it's this. Especially Sergio Busquets, who's in doubt right right about now, who's tested positive for COVID. Yeah. Busquets and uh, Diego Llorente. There you go. <laughs> yeah, again, it's 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 a little bit mind boggling, and and again, uh, Seferin was so insistent on on having spectators at the games. Uh, I mean, he was quoted in Croatian article. A couple of months uh, before the tournament started, saying that any nation that cannot give us spectators in the grounds are going to lose their matches. And at that point, it was really questionable whether or not the municipality of Munich would allow spectators at the matches. I mean, if nothing outrageous happens in the next couple of weeks, the matches in Munich are going to be played in front of a limited amount of spectators. But at that point, when Seferin made those comments, that was really in doubt. And um, to see UEFA pressuring host nations in that in that way, given that we're dealing with a with a huge international health crisis here, and you know, being a nurse and uh, having been forced to work a lot more OT than I'm used to due to this pandemic, even though I'm not working directly with the pandemic, I know this. I I sort of have a Maybe a slightly better idea what sort of pressure the healthcare systems in most countries are under. And, and Norway are by no means a country that has had it bad during this pandemic, to say the least. And to display such arrogance and to say, well, we don't care about how this is going to affect the healthcare system, how this is going to infa- affect infection numbers. I mean, if you shove 20,000 people into the Allianz Arena, you're probably going to get more infections you're bound to get that i mean people have to travel there somehow and yes even if people are perfectly uh, obeying by all the the rules and the distancing and all that something is going to happen most likely so to to pressure those nations in that in that way was completely out of place i mean he walked it back but um it it sort of leaves a foul impression in 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 your mouth because honestly it seems like uefa is caring more about great tv pictures than the actual health of the population, then yeah, pretty much more. They're, they're more concerned about the great TV pictures than than healthcare matters, the healthcare system, and the sort of global pandemic situation that we're currently facing. And uh, you know, you know what? You would think. I mean, it would be really easy to to say, well, they're doing that for the money. No, I mean, the ticketing of uh, the Euros twenty twenty is pretty much. Um, it's not amounting to a lot of money for UEFA. Not at all. I mean, when you see the sort of TV rights money they're getting from the tournament, you know, the, the TV, the ticketing is, is not mattering in all that much, really. 
Oh yeah, oh, yeah. You, you need extras for the crowd scenes in, in the TV show of, of Euro 2020. Okay, I think we've probably, we've probably reigned on the Euro 2020 in 2021 parade sufficiently. I think it's important to, 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 to bring those issues up because there are a lot of dark clouds hovering over aspects of this tournament. But there's also a really high-level football tournament to be played and one in which the national team of the country whose league we are so devoted to is – by some lights, not that far off the top of, of, of betting favorites. Amazing as that might seem. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting this, this year delay in playing uh, the tournament. Uh, I definitely think that there might be teams who were sort of coming in hotter who thought that this would be a better tournament for them as what it's maybe shaping up to be, whether that might be injury concerns or, or form issues. I would probably say that a year's delay was a good thing for Germany, considering just how bad a lot of the narratives surrounding this team were a year ago or a year and a half ago. This was a team that was just basically getting beat up all over the place in, in a lot of high-profile games, getting, you know, terrible results in big games against Spain, against Holland, against, you know, other other opponents that, like, I feel like this version of Germany heading into this tournament, especially bringing key veteran players like Mats Hummels, like Thomas Müller back into the fold, I feel like there is at least a smidgen of good feeling going into the tournament, which I, I can't imagine there would have been much uh, a year ago. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the fact that Müller and Hummels are back is also down to the fact that Jürgen Löw, in that year of the pandemic, has decided that he's going to step down after this tournament. Yeah, for sure, for sure. His contract was initially running until 2022. So, the, um, I mean, two years ago we thought he would at least stick around for the, for the World Cup, but he's not going to. And I, I think Jürgen Löw is also concerned about his legacy that he leaves behind because... Yes, he's coached the national team to some amazing results. He was the assistant manager during the 2006 World Cup, which saw Germany rise like a phoenix from the ashes, pretty much, after some gruesome years in the late 90s and early 2000s, which ended in a third-place finish. The team went to the final of the Euros in 2008, and it went to the semifinals in 2010 of the World Cup. Again, another semi-final appearance in the Euros 2012. And then this was all topped off with uh, with a ever-so-excellent win in Brazil in 2014. So until that point, Jugula's legacy was the sort of... Um, the legacy of a reformer, of somebody who brought new tactical ideas into, into the fold, who implemented them, who, through his tactical know-how and genius brought good results to the national team. But obviously, after, you know, the Euros in 2016 and the catastrophic World Cup in 2018, that has sort of been turned on its head. And uh, people have been out to get love for a long time. And uh, the media is really just portraying him right now as a, as a lame duck. So for him, this is a chance to prove those people wrong. And for him, it's also a chance to you know, somewhat redeem a little bit of his legacy of what he leaves behind. Because if this tournament is not going to go well, 
he's going to be the national team coach who quit seven years too late. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could argue, and, and you mentioned it, that the sort of the stink did not begin to linger over Yogi Love until the 2018 World Cup when everything went sideways. But I think that in retrospect, a lot of the narratives around where this team was going in terms of who was getting picked, why they were getting picked, what his sort of policies were about who he was picking when and how he was employing them. The questions just started getting um, much, much more searching. And he had, let's, let's face it, worse answers for them for the most part. He just, he, his, his appearances took on an increasingly defensive cast as he was, you know, forced to justify why he was trying the things he was trying and, and so forth. Let's, let's talk a little bit about who he has selected for this tournament, because I think that it's even aside from the inclusion of some of those, you know, old masters from the, uh, the 2014 team who had been out in the cold officially, uh, from, from his side of things, like Thomas Müller and, and, uh, Mats Hummels. You did have two other veterans who had been sticking with the team through all that period, which is to say Manuel Neuer and Tony Coase. Those, you know, those are all guys who were part of the 2014 World Cup winning group. But in general, there's a lot of, a lot of, there's been a lot of turnover in, in that time. And I have to say, and I made reference to this when we were sort of getting into this topic, this has not been a very consistent team. This has not been a team who has sort of looked as good as the sum of its parts. You know, you look down the list and you look down uh, not only just just purely the, the names of the players and how familiar they are to, to watchers of the Bundesliga and more recently, you know, the Premier League as well as, as players have moved on. It doesn't seem like there's a really great established group in here. How do you sort of see Love setting out uh, his team, I don't know, maybe in the first couple of matches, let's think about against France. Do you have a sort of an idea of, of some, some people who need to be on the pitch for that? Uh, well, I mean, I know Manon Loya is going to start and go. And from there on out, it's starting to get a little bit trickier. I mean, he's experimented with the back three or slash back five, and then he's gone with the back four at times. So you really start thinking, okay, should he go with the back four or should he go with the back three? I think he might be likely to go with uh, with sort of a back back three, and that probably would include at least Mats Hummels and Antonio Rüdiger and one of the other defenders. Uh, maybe, yeah, I uh, mean, in in the last game against Latvia, it was Ginter Hummels, Rüdiger in the back, Kimmich, Gundogan, Kroos, and Gozens. You know, in in the the it was the three four three as they you know as kicker laid it out, and then Havertz, Gnabry, and Miller up front. You think about, you just look at those names and you think to yourself, that's a team that wins a game 7-1, especially when you're playing. <laughs> but um, this, they don't have any Latvias in their group. They have France, they have Portugal, and they have Hungary, who is, you know, not Latvia. Yeah, I think you shouldn't underestimate Hungary uh, in, in, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for for me, the problem is when the when if Löw goes for for a system with four at the back, um, the right back position is obviously going to be a problem. I mean, his best player on this position is Joshua Kimmich, and he seems most likely to pick him in midfield. But yeah, I, I think uh, I think he's most likely to go with a with a back three of consisting of Hummels, uh, Rudiger, and another defender, maybe Ginter, and 
Yeah, I mean, from there on out, uh, you you wonder, Serge Gnabry, is he going to play a role? Uh, Leroy Zane as well. And and then there is uh, good old Leon Goretzka, who um, is out mm-hmm. for the match against France, so he's not going to make an appearance in that match. So who's going to take his place? But, I mean, uh, I, mean I think... Uh, I mean, going down the list from the back to the front, I think Neuer, Hummels, Rudiger, Kimmich... Gundogan, Thomas Müller, Toni Kroos, and uh, Kai Havertz are eight players that are likely to start the match against France. And the other three positions are sort of wild cards, depending on the way that Löw sets sets up his tactics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they do have options. It's it's interesting, especially up front. You've got um, you know a player who I think. Pedigree-wise, over the last several years, if you look most broadly, you know, Timo Werner would be a great option. Obviously, he's had some, some serious struggles in sort of adjusting to life in uh, the English Premier League. And then you have somebody like uh, Kevin Folland, who Yogi Love basically <laughs> pretended like he didn't exist for about five or six years and then uh, suddenly had a, a, a change of heart. He had a lot of changes of heart leading up to this tournament, and I think that's probably a good thing. He's in; he was in great form in uh, in France. Scored, you know, I don't know, seventeen goals, something like that, for for Monaco last season. So that would be an interesting option. Just looking, I guess there's been a little bit of talk about players who people wished could have potentially taken part in this squad. Players who were left out, you know, altogether, players who were, you know, added to the Euro or to, to the, the under twenty one squad as opposed to this squad. Is there anybody who you wish could could have taken part who you feel like they might regret not uh, making that call to? Uh first name that comes to mind is Florian Wirtz. Mm-hmm. Really. I mean he's just had a brilliant uh, under twenty one Euros. Germany won that tournament, by the way. Yeah, not a bad thing to win the under-21 tournament. Yes, but then there was the press conference after the match uh, where Stefan Kunz, their coach, sort of... um, Yeah, he sort of put an end to the the possibility of having wild celebrations about the next generation of of German talents coming forward, saying that, well, you know what? Um, Look at England. They've got seven of their players that would have been qualified to play in this tournament, playing for their A squad. They are so much further along than we are at the moment. So, but yeah, Florian Wirtz is, is pretty much the, the, the first name that, that comes to mind when it comes to that uh, under-21 squad. And, um, you know, I mean, another player I sort of would have liked to see as a, as a joker at the tournament, and this is maybe a little, little bit left field, but it's Nils Pettersson. Sort of like a striker who can come in in the last 20 minutes and, uh, you know, poke home a go when I need. He does that ever so well in the Bundesliga and he's, does, he's done so for, for many, many years. He's even been part of the uh, Olympic squad uh, for the games in Rio four years ago, five years ago. So, I mean, he his inclusion would have been... Uh, I mean, when, when you start including people like Kevin Volland, why not think about him too? That would have been great too, but... I, you know, other than that, uh, the question would also be: uh, Who would you like to drop from the squad he's current he's currently got? Yeah, absolutely. I I feel like, and and there is a fair bit of of talk not only about uh, Florian Vietz, especially as well as he played uh, in that tournament and, and in the final when he scored both the goals, but Reid Labaku. A number of people have been 
vocal about feeling it was a bit of a shame that he didn't get a chance to play with the senior side in this tournament, considering what a transformative season he had for Wolfsburg and, and the fact that he's been integrated into the, you know, both under 21 and to a lesser extent here and there with the senior side. It seems like he, he might have uh, played his way in, but you know, I think the proof will be in the pudding. I guess real quick before we, before we sort of leave uh, Germany and Germany issues behind, how, High hopes, do you think, uh, German fans should head into this tournament? They do, they're, they're in the group of death. Let's face it. This is easily the strongest group. It has three, you know, teams who are, you know, former winners of, of tournaments. Defending, defending yeah. champions. These, are, these well. are teams that know how to win. Yeah, of course. Of course. Is it realistic for them to, to think about going far? Or is this basically they're going to be in a dogfight in, in the group stage and, and whatever happens, happens? I mean, getting those tough matches out of the way at the start of the tournament might actually be an advantage. I mean, how much tougher can it get in the knockout stages than this? I mean, you've got the current World Cup winners. Yeah. You've got the current Euro winners. And Germany, uh, a team that traditionally has gone far pretty much most of the tournaments it has played. So how much tougher can it get going forward? Having said that, I, I, I don't think that Portugal are as great as they were four years ago. So there are definitely possibilities there. Uh, Hungary uh, shouldn't be a walk in the park, but should be a doable task. And once you've reached the knockout stages, uh, it's all a little bit dependent on the luck of the draw, form on the day, on injuries. Uh, COVID is going obviously going to play a role in this as well. So it's all a little bit up in the air, really. So um, I would be rather disappointed if Germany doesn't make it through the group stages. But what happens after then, it's it's really all a little bit up in the air, I have to say. Yeah, I too, I, you know, let's face it, four out of six third place teams make it into the, the knockout stage. So if they can avoid coming bottom, <laughs> the chances are very good <laughs> that they, you know, they'll have a 66% chance, even if they don't come in first or second to get out of the first round. I think they will. I think that if they can especially avoid losing or, you know, get a big win, in at least one of those games, probably against Hungary. You know, I, I, I feel a little bit bad thinking that uh, Hungary are just going to get um, get whooped in every match. But I, I think they're going to get whooped in every match. They're just not on the level of, of uh, the, the other three teams in their group. A lot of teams also, when they face Germany, they think about Germany of old. They think about 2014 Germany. They think about, you know, 2002 Germany, you know, you, you just spoke earlier in, in the, the podcast here about, you know, the dark days of the early 2000s for Germany, which I, I would agree, there was some pretty ugly football going on. But, you know, <laughs> they also made it to a World Cup final in the middle of that stage. So Germany, they kind of have a history dragging themselves further than you would have thought. And I think other teams are aware of that. If they get into the knockout stages, there's going to be some teams who are going to look at the fact that they're playing against Germany as really imposing. So Yeah, I mean, that 2002 tournament, I don't think that Germany could have gotten any luckier on uh, circumstances, uh, especially if you remember that match against the United States. Oh, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and the lack of the draw in terms of the opponents Germany was facing on that way to that final was um, spectacular, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, 
Let's take a little break, and we can then think also about Bundesliga performers on on other teams who might really catch the eye or have a sort of a breakout on the world stage. I mean, the Bundesliga is the alpha and omega for us, but it isn't for everyone. And I'll be interested to see how some of these players uh, show off. Here comes part two of our non-comprehensive Euro 2020 in the Euro 2021 preview. Uh, Nick, you say that a lot. The, the Euro <laughs> 2020 in the. You know what? I have a, I've got a theory of my own on, on this one, and um, yeah. I think UEFA have started to listen to Greta Thunberg. They don't want to throw away all those mascots from 2020 and design new ones for 2021. They want to save that material and not, you know, contribute to environmental waste. Instead, they want to sell the 2020 crap to children and do the world a lot of good. And I applaud that effort by UEFA. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, why don't we just call every European championship from now until eternity Euro 2020? There'll be plenty of, (laughs) you know, mascots in store. (laughs) Dumb swag. That you can get at, uh, you know, Karstadt or Corte Inglés <laughs> or whatever whatever department store that happens to be in, in your European city. Yes, we promised that we would not talk about uh, some, some Bundesliga players who, who we sort of will be having an extra eye on in this tournament. I, I think each of us are going to single out uh, maybe three players mm-hmm. who we sort of have have sort of uh, a little bit of extra interest. And in. I'll let you go ahead and start with, with your first one, Nick. I think I'm going to go for Wolfsburg's uh, Josep Brekelo, who's not necessarily had the best season of his life, but um, I think he's a really great ball player, a really great distributor of the ball, has a great shot on himself, uh, scored his first Bundesliga hat-trick towards the end of the season. I think he can be a vital player for Croatia, and uh, Croatia is one of those underrated teams. I mean, I haven't heard a lot of chat about how far Croatia is going to go in, in this tournament, but hey, uh, they went really far in the last World Cup. They went just about as far as you can go without winning yeah. in the World so, Cup. So, um, I think Josep Brekelo is going to be an, an interesting watch. Um, so, he, he would be my first pick. Nice. Croatia, they, they're in a group with Czech Republic, England, and Scotland. Kind of a funky group there. We have, you know, sort of home nations, as people from the that country talk about them as, as well as a, a sort of a central slash Eastern European contingent. How do you like their chances in, in Group D? I think they're going through. I think Scotland are probably going to be whipping boys of that group. <laughs> and uh, to see Croatia finish below third place is quite tough. I think they're probably going to be fine. I probably think they're going to end up in one of the first two places of that group. I think it's between them and England. I agree. I agree. I, I, you know, England is going to be a really tough out in this tournament. They're, they're just absolutely stacked. You know, this is finally a tournament where I am going into it thinking, wow, England, as opposed to Wow, they're overrated. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll go with my pick uh, for, for a Bundesliga player who I'm very interested to see what he is going to come up with in this tournament. And it's also a Wolfsburg player. It is Wout Weghorst. He is making his uh, major tournament debut for the Netherlands. He's, you know, a player who it took 
it took the Netherlands quite a long time to warm up to. I think that there's a lot of issues there. Considering the way the KNVB operates and how sort of tight they are with a bunch of old sort of IX old boys, anybody who doesn't come out of that pedigree or doesn't play in that style is ten, tends to get sneered at for a while. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it took him a long time to get to get a look from that team. He's managed to score in some of the one of the friendlies uh, leading up to this tournament. I think if he gets time and uh, if that team functions well, which is very you know much up in the air, it could be a really interesting tournament for him. I you know. I've said it a number of times uh, before. I, I really like watching him play. I do actually think he has a lot more to offer than just, you know, poaching. I think he actually has pretty decent feet and pretty decent instincts when it comes to, you know, laying balls off when they should be laid off and, and playing <laughs> very directly when you know, play should be direct. Yeah, I think uh, I think he's a great example of a player who's not necessarily gotten his start at the youth academy, but who's sort of uh, played in the lower divisions before he... Um, started you know making his way towards the professionals i think he's got a lot of instinct and um yeah i think the way he uses his body as well uh, it sort of speaks to the fact that he's been a lower division player um at times uh i think he uses it more smartly than uh, a lot of other strikers in the bundesliga so yeah it's, it's definitely a great pick excellent uh they are pitted against austria North Macedonia and Ukraine in Group C. Now that's that's a real hodgepodge that group as well. Certainly in terms of pedigree, Netherlands that would be the, the class of that group. Is that something that is actually going to be borne out in reality, Nick? Or do you think that that actually they might find themselves in a bit of a fight, not necessarily to get out of the group, but but to win the group? Let's just say. Um, no, I should win that group. <laughs> I don't, I don't see any of those teams putting them into serious trouble. But um, the story of the Netherlands has oftentimes been that they've been great in the group stages, and once they've gotten out of it, they um, have a slip-up at the wrong stage of the tournament, and then they're out of it. So um, it's always always the danger with the, with the Netherlands. All right. Uh, okay. Well, give us give us another player. Uh, Robin Bison from, from Mainz, uh, who plays for Sweden, neighboring Sweden. <laughs> I think he's a great player, and he's really gotten into his own under a Danish coach, uh, which also is sort of a neighboring country to Norway, even though it's, uh, you know, th there's a bit there's a bit of ocean between Norway and, and Denmark, but culturally speaking, we are neighbors. Yeah, I think he's he's a he's a great he's a great attacking player, uh, great instincts, great passing skills, great speed. So I think out out of those Swedish players uh, from the Bundesliga, he's probably the most likely to be a revelation at this tournament. All right. Looking at their group, it's also quite a lot of uh, interesting Bundesliga uh, participants. We've got Poland, led by Mr. Everything, of course. Uh, we've got Slovakia, led by the other Mr. Everything, which is to say Peter Pekarik. Andre Duda. Uh, and Andre Duda, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Spain, Spain, uh, who, which features one of the, the Bundesliga players. I'm interested to see what impact he makes, which is uh, Danny Olmo. I think Danny Olmo, I liked what he had to, to show off in the Bundesliga quite a lot this season. I think he was, in a lot of ways, you know, RB's most consistent attacking threat through through a lot of the stretches of the, of the season. And I, I'm also just really interested in his narrative. I mean, Danny Olmo, 
you would hardly know that he was Spanish, <laughs> considering that he left Spain, you know, at age 15 or 16 or something like that to go to Croatia and played there for several years before moving on to the, you know, RB system. I, it's unusual for Spanish players to do that, you know, because of the, the great development systems that they have. I mean, he's a, he's a Barcelona youth player and, and, you know, there's, there's, I, 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 a lot I was, of, I was, I was going to say that Barcelona has sort of had the tendency to, get their players out of loan when once they're 17 18 years old and you know ship them all around Europe but uh being 15 years old uh, yeah that's that's truly a very young age yeah yeah he pulled the trigger early and in truth people who are spanish internationals tend to either play in spain or maybe they play in germany italy france england after having made a big money move having come up through a La Liga team and then getting, you know, a big paycheck somewhere else. His route to this team and uh, his route to potentially being a really big part of this team is just so unusual. I think it's going to be interesting to see how that story unfolds, not only on, on a global scale, but in as much as I can pay attention to this, not speaking Spanish, uh, how, how Spain sort of takes him in if he turns out to be a, 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 a big performer in this tournament. Yeah, it's uh, definitely going to be interesting. I mean, to, to, to speak about I mean, <laughs> to that Danny Olmo move when, when he came and I was sort of like looking at it, it was coming from Zagreb back in the day. I was sort of like, oh, okay, RB have found a great Croatian player and then I go into his player profile and transfer market and I was really surprised to find out that he's Spanish. But yeah, I mean, this tournament, I mean, those tournaments, they really... Um, give players a, a platform to, to show themselves. And if he does well, he might as well earn him more, earn himself a big money move to Spain. And uh, this is probably something that he's going to aim at at some point in his career, I would imagine. Hey, you know, Spain's nice. Spain's super nice. If you can if you can get paid a lot of money to, to live and work there, <laughs> do it. Uh, okay, so if, if you have another player, I think you should share it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, there are so many great picks i i could have gone with but you know what i'm um you know i've been going back and forth and sort of changing my mind like 15 times uh, right about now because there are 89 players from the bundesliga and two players from the bundesliga too so in total there are 91 players with a german background at this tournament which makes germany the country with the second most players uh, from their domestic leagues at this tournament uh, only topped by england indeed but you know what? Since I went sort of like Scandinavian with uh, with my last pick, I might as well go Scandinavian with uh, my next pick as well. <laughs> so I'm going for Robert Skov from uh, from neighboring Denmark. From Denmark. From neighboring Denmark. It's, it's like it's like the Eurovisions. I give all my points to the neighboring countries. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. Very nice. I think I think he's come along nicely ever since he moved to to Hoffenheim. Um, Hoffenheim have this great knack of finding players and uh, leagues that not necessarily are in the top five, but that produce decent talents. And the Danish league is pretty much one of those leagues. And uh, Robert Skoff was truly was really, uh, really in uh, revelation in, in, in the in Denmark. And once he moved to Hoffenheim, he needs some time to find his feet, but I think he's come along nicely over the, over the last half a year. And, um, I'm really excited to see what he can do in this tournament. Yeah, yeah. I mean, considering he came to the Bundesliga as a vaunted goal scorer, which has has absolutely not been borne out since then, it would, it would just be nice to see him <laughs> see him take some shots, score some goals. 
you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think he's been uh, he's been a decent player for Hoffenheim, and you know I, I I like Denmark. I tend to go there whenever I have the chance because it's um it's sort of like uh, the most relaxed country on earth. It's sort of like oh, it's two o'clock. Let's have a beer and uh, talk about something inappropriate, and it's completely fine. <laughs> oh man! Sort of com- <laughs> what a sell! <laughs> <laughs> that's the sort of country Denmark is and um, Copenhagen is absolutely an amazing city and I'm dying to go back there and I've been wanting to go for the last couple of years but I obviously haven't been able to so yeah Robert Scovides and now I'm truly excited to hear your third pick alright oh by the way just before we before we uh, leave that behind uh, Denmark they're, they're in group B with uh, Belgium, Finland, and Russia, how do you how do you like their chances? I mean, obviously Belgium's sort of the heavyweights there, probably. I think I think they are going to come uh, second um, and progress in the tournament. And uh, I really I really hope that um, Robert Scott is going to do well because um, man, man, I mean the other the other player I had in mind was Sasa Kalajic from from Austria, who I think is uh, also going to have a great tournament and to. Obviously, has a great background story as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, comeback kid. Yeah, Austria. It's it's funny. Austria and Switzerland to a slightly lesser extent. I mean, you know, <laughs> the majority of their of their squad plays in the Bundesliga. So you know, twenty one players from Austria. I think uh, I think Austria has almost as, as many Bundesliga players in their squad than Germany. I think they might have more actually. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm excited to see them. I was excited to see, you know, Halstenberg. I'm excited to see, you know, a number of players on that team. But the guy who I wanted to single out, who I think, you know, well, I guess I may be a little bit afraid that we might not see him for a lot longer, especially if things go well for him at this tournament, is Andre Silva. Andre Silva for Portugal. You know, Portugal, it's interesting that you mentioned earlier you thought that Portugal is maybe not as good as uh, last time out when they won the, uh, the, the the tournament under somewhat cloudy circumstances considering I think they didn't win a game until the final itself. Um, you know, lots of – Lots of grumbling about uh, those those issues. Pretty defensively minded team, but they do. They've got so many good additions to the team since the last time out. You know, I think you know Bruno Fernandes is probably the one that's front of mind for a lot of folks, considering what he has has done at Manchester United over the last couple of years. But uh, Andre Silva, if he can get consistent playing time, I know there's 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 a lot of um, a lot of attacking talent. On this team, and and formation wise, it might be tricky for them to give him a a, a, t- a big feature. Have Portugal produced any sort of great attacking talent in the last eighteen years before Andres Silva? You know, yeah. I'm gonna have to think about that one. Yeah, yeah, that there's yeah. that guy on Instagram. Yeah, the guy with the yeah. with the, the sports cars and the swimming pools and stuff. Yeah, that yeah. one. That that's the one. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. I, I've heard some pretty bad stories about him, but yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, Andre Silva. I, I really think. I really think. Um, they're really bad too. Yeah. I really think that he's a player who, at least from a sort of the perspective of, of being a bit under the radar, considering this is probably his first very good season as a professional. I mean, he's he's shown flashes both at, at Frankfurt and you know, prior to that in, in, in Portugal and Italy. But this was the first time where he was a featured, you know, starting number nine and he exceeded 
everybody's expectations. I mean, this was a year where if there, if, if Lewandowski and Holland didn't exist, he would have been the runaway, you know, guy of the season in terms of, of, you know, goal scoring talent in the Bundesliga. And, and I feel like if he can, could, you know, sort of translate any of that, uh, into, into Portugal's campaign, he would be, you know, maybe an interesting, interesting flutter for, uh, you know, top goal scorer. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. He is uh, truly one of one of the best strikers that we've seen in the Bundesliga, and uh, he's probably going to do well in this tournament. And uh, I mean, the, the way I'm thinking about P- Portugal maybe being a little bit weaker than they were four years ago, I think they're not going to have to have that same defensive stability that they had four years ago. I mean, in terms of the attacking talent and the midfield talent, they're obviously on par with uh, what they've had before. And uh, you know that that Instagram guy with uh, you know that that travel ban to the United States, a uh, self-imposed travel ban. Obviously, he would be taken into custody by the police if he was to arrive yeah. in the United States. Um, the, the Clark County District Attorney might uh, might what, want to be aware of his, his uh, whereabouts should he ever enter the United States. He might want to have a word or two with, uh, with him, yes. I mean, yeah, I, I, the, he's obviously not gotten any worse a footballer ever since. And... Uh, even though there were those bad stories, those uh, those stories have faded away and uh, been replaced with uh, the sort of image that we want, that his sponsors want him to have in the public, unfortunately. Well, all, all we can do, Nick, all we can do is keep bringing it up. That's 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 our job. So, okay, so we, we've mentioned some players that uh, are, are of interest to us. They're, they're Bundesliga uh, storylines carrying over into the Euros, perhaps. As well as, you know, a couple of teams in Austria and Switzerland, which, you know, for Christ's sakes, we, we could have done, we could have done a preview of those, uh, teams considering all the Bundesliga players, uh, that, that, that are involved there. Let's get down to semi brass tax, copper tax, uh, some sort of tax about who we think might win this tournament. I mean, obviously things happen in tournaments, <laughs> Portugal, Greece. You know, Turkey making it to a semi-final. Denmark in '92. Yeah, yeah, Denmark. In that regard, I should go with Finland. Yeah, no, yeah, no. why not? All right, so le- legit title uh, contender. Give me one um, that you're you're most convinced by. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate to say it, and I know there's been some internal unrest in in, in the French squad from from what I've heard, but um, I'm, I'm going with France. I mean that that is uh, that was my pick for the title for the World Cup last time, and I think uh, player by player. Uh, in terms of the coach they have, they're probably presenting if everything goes according to plan and if COVID doesn't hit them too badly. I think they uh, are actually uh, looking like the, the, the most likely to win this tournament. And uh, it pains me to say this, but my outside bet would actually be uh, England or Belgium. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, I, I I like it. I think I think Belgium for me is the team to watch. I think especially because they have been nearly men a number of times. Not only not only in terms of, of international tournaments, but you saw some of their you know key players come close. I mean, I'm thinking especially of Kevin De Bruyne, who you know was basically <laughs> knocked out of the European Championship final just a couple of weeks ago. I would assume he's fairly hungry for something out of this uh, tournament, as well as some of his compatriots like Romelu Lukaku and and others who have, have come close in the past. I think England is also 
one to watch, France. Sleeper team. I, you know, maybe, maybe I'm just drinking the Kool-Aid by, by having watched so many of these players play so much in the Bundesliga. I think Austria is actually a team that might have a bit of a, bit of a ride. You know, I could see them going to the last eight or even four if things go well. Turkey is pretty interesting to me as well. This is this is a team that sort of you know Turkey. They they either <laughs> either like don't make the tournament or they, you know, make it to the last four. So I I'll be interested to see how they go. Any sort of sleeper team for you? Mm, sleeper team, sleeper team. Yeah, Sweden, actually. Hmm, okay. I mean they've had their COVID trouble and uh, Spain as well. I think Spain is actually, uh, you know, about, I mean, both of these teams have had their COVID trouble before the tournament started, but going by their squads and going by the quality that they have on the pitch, I think they're definitely two outside contenders as well. But I think... I think the world is wide awake about Spain's chances, Nick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, the teams that come up as favorites right about now, they're maybe a little bit underrated. I don't know. But... Um, yeah, I th- but what's so exciting about the Euros is that you basically have 24 teams and you probably have six to eight teams who potentially could win it. And when you look at the Champions League, for instance, where you have 32 teams and you think, ah, well, here are probably four teams who could potentially win it, which means that the Euros, besides giving us a month of football and an excuse to drink far too many beers... Also give us brilliant football. Well put. Well put. The format, the third place teams going through, four of six third place teams going through, not the most attractive. But um, I think I think you either should go back to 16 teams or expand it to 32. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. In terms of making those group stages more competitive, because if, you know, two thirds of the teams are going through, you're you're really doing it wrong. Oh yeah. Come and on. you can, I mean, if you look at, if you look at some of these teams, which are on, let's just say the lower end of qualifiers, you know, we're talking about Finland, North Macedonia, Scotland, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's a, there's at least eight more teams who are at least as good as they are. You know, your boys, for example. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could have the Faroe Islands at the Euros for once. <laughs> San Marino, make it happen. All right, that is a wrap for this edition of Talking Foosball, the official non-comprehensive Euro 2020 in the year 2021 preview. Great to have you along for the ride, Nick, as always. It's great to be on again. And uh, yeah, really, really, really looking forward to the Euros now. And I I hope you are too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll, We'll have much more to come from this podcast through the tournament. We're on an impressionistic schedule, let's just say. We've got a lot of people in our world paying attention to this in various different ways, covering it on the ground, watching at home, watching in their cabins in, uh, you know, rural Norway or rural somewhere else, uh, be that as it may. So we will be back probably within a few days and uh, we'll be following Germany. We'll be following the progress of the tournament and all the Bundesliga Akturen. So, uh, yeah. We'll be seeing you. In the meantime, you know, rate, review, subscribe. You know, show us all the love you can. This is some next Molly. 